Hello, and welcome to Cross the Line, a Christian perspective on politics. If you enjoy this episode, find us online at thecitizensbrief.com. Give us a follow on Instagram and a like on Facebook at The Citizens Brief to see more insightful Christian political content in your feed. Thanks for tuning in, and enjoy this episode of Cross the Line. Now to your host, Daniel Hoster. I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. The New Yorker said that our guest, I quote, stands at the vanguard of a new movement of Christians looking to reclaim their faith. Christianity Today described her as Evangelical's favorite English professor. On Twitter, she's known as Notorious KSP. Karen Swall Pryor has been a professor of English at Liberty University for 21 years, specializing in 18th century British literature, and this fall she'll be leaving Liberty to join the faculty of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Her colorful commentaries on culture, literature, theology, and politics have been featured in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, and The Gospel Coalition, among many others. Dr. Pryor has penned a few widely acclaimed books, most recently on Reading Well, Finding the Good Life in Great Books, Booked, Literature in the Soul of Me, Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, and Abolitionist. She's a member of the Faith Advisory Council of the Humane Society of the United States, and formerly was a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Dr. Pryor travels the nation regularly to speak about her work. It is such an honor to have Karen Swallow Pryor join us today. Dr. Pryor, welcome to Cross the Line. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. And there's so much that I want to touch on today. There's so many different topics uh, that we could talk about, but I want to jump right in with something that's pretty important to you. Much of your public life has consisted of teaching about books at Liberty, writing about books, and even writing some books yourself. Why has literature been such an important part of your professional life? Well, um, well it, 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 I grew up loving reading. Um, fortunately, I didn't have a lot of the distractions that we have today. We didn't have social media, the internet. I lived in the, in the country and spent a lot of time by myself, so I really just fell in love with the magic of stories um, from a very young age. Um, became an English major in college, and then just went on to uh, get my PhD in English literature before I even realized that I wanted to teach. Uh, discovered that along the way, and it has just been the joy of my life to be able to share one of the things I love the most with the rest of the world. That's awesome. Why is reading good literature promiscuously? That's something that you've talked about a lot. You've written a Gospel Coalition article on that. Um, why is reading good literature like that key to our spiritual formation and growth? Well, that phrase, um, reading promiscuously, comes from a 1644 tract by the English Puritan poet and pamphleteer John Milton. Um, and he was writing as a conservative Puritan Christian um, and art, making an argument that Christians should read widely. He talks about um, books promiscuously read, and that word in its original meaning means uh, sort of indeterminate, indeterminate mixing, like just read so, so really reading widely. Um, and as Christians, because we understand that all truth is God's truth, and we should seek it out wherever it might be found, as Augustine advises, we should be reading very widely. Now, we don't have to read um, horrible literature, there's so much right. literature out there, 
we certainly certainly shouldn't restrict ourselves to things that are written by Christians or espousing Christian doctrine because we should be exposed to a lot of different ideas. And in doing that, we actually are better able to discern when we read things mm. by Christians about Christianity about, for whether they are true or not, because nothing apart from the Word of God is entirely true, and we have to develop our discernment skills. You've also talked about a lot about reading uh, connecting to cultivating virtue. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, in um, Reading Well, um, I examine some of the classical virtues, and what I try to argue there is not just that when we read a, a good story, it imparts a lesson to us, which, you know, sometimes good literature does, although oftentimes its lessons are sort of ambiguous. Um, but what it does more than just sort of us something through its content is that it forms us through its own form. So reading literature, whether it's a great novel or poetry um, or some other form of a play, it actually forms us because it is a, an aesthetic experience. Um, that's why if you, you know, if you just read a quick summary on Wikipedia about a great novel, it really is not the same experience as actually reading it because the Absolutely. way literature unfolds itself and the, the feeling and the sense that it conveys through its craft is something that can't be captured in just a summary. And so the experience of actually reading it shapes us in the true sense of the word aesthetic, which has to do with the senses. It gives us a sensory experience um, that stays with us long after just the plot points do. Um, and so in that way, um, it, sh it shapes our character. And when we read well, when we read thoughtfully and immersively and reflectively rather than just sort of skimming to get the information, we actually develop those kinds of virtues in our character of reflectiveness and patience and diligence and thoughtfulness and wisdom and many more that I write about in the book. It's so interesting how reading literature, it offers so much more than lessons, like you said. It really offers perspectives uh, and all kinds of things that we can really learn uh, through practical experience. So a few years ago, you wrote a book entitled Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, and Abolitionist. And the foreword was written by the inimitable Eric Metaxas, which is something to be proud of in and of itself. Um, but the book itself, it really paints a striking portrait of Hannah Moore, the British reformer, evangelical leader, and so much more. But most Americans have never heard of the name Hannah Moore. I know I didn't before I kind of started reading about her. What compelled you to write about Hannah Moore, and who was she? Well, I actually rediscovered Hannah Moore in the process of writing my doctoral dissertation, which I was writing in the area of the 18th century novel. I had never heard of Hannah Moore, and my committee members had never heard of Hannah Moore, but in the process of the research that I was doing on some better-known novelists of the 18th century, I discovered this sort of minor literary figure who'd been long forgotten, and so I, I was interested in the single novel that she wrote, because my area is the English novel, its rise and development, and so I, in, in learning more about this best-selling novel that this unheard-of woman had ever had written so long ago, I discovered that not only was she this popular novel of her day, but she was an evangelical, she was an abolitionist, she was a reformer, and I, I just you know, discovered
discovered her, uh, wrote my dissertation on her, and then um, it, it took a number of years, but eventually wrote this, you know, this book-length study of her for a general audience to reintroduce her um, to the world. So who was Hannah Moore, and what did she kind of accomplish in English society? You've talked about kind of her, um, I guess, effect on literature, but she also kind of had more of a Wilberforce effect is kind of what I've gathered. Uh, so what was her effect on English society during that time? Well, sort of the shorthand way of describing her is to call her the female Wilberforce, um, or maybe call Wilberforce the male Hannah Moore. <laughs> um, but because Wilberforce is a name that more people remember for his right. leading role in abolishing slavery as a member of parliament. Um, well, Hannah Moore was basically one of Wilberforce's best friends. Um, but because she was a woman, um, she didn't have a public role because at that time women couldn't vote, they couldn't hold office, they couldn't um, own property. And Hannah Moore, as a conservative evangelical woman, also didn't strive for those things. Um, she uh, was a writer, and um, that is the role that she played in the abolitionist movement and in uh, the movement of the evangelicals to reform many other areas of society. So she wrote poetry and, and plays. Um, and at the very same time that Wilberforce was was bringing before Parliament uh, anti-slavery slavery legislation, Moore was writing poetry to help persuade the English people about the cruelties and injustice of slavery. So while Wilberforce was attempting to change the law, Hannah Moore was attempting to change people's hearts and minds, and she succeeded. You talked in the book about how Hannah Moore both engaged the culture and transformed it, which I thought was really interesting, because it seems like most people kind of previously saw that as a, a dichotomy that couldn't really be reconciled. So how did she manage to both engage the culture for, for Christ and transform it for Christ? Well, what she did, which was why she was so successful, and also I would say why she's forgotten today, or largely forgotten, especially as a literary figure, is she tapped into the most popular literary forms of the time, uh, which are not necessarily forms that are continued to be read today, which is kind of why people don't read her. But, for example, people love treatises then, you know, these long didactic treatises talking about morals and manners and society, and she wrote those for the upper class. Um, she wrote plays for um, girls uh, who were being educated in, in the you know, newly emerging private schools. She wrote poetry for the London literary elite uh, that sort of embraced her when she first arrived there. And when she opened up Sunday schools across uh, the western part of England where she was from, um, to teach the poor to read, uh, because that's what Sunday schools did in, in that day. They were like actually just school for the poor before public schools um, had been uh, opened across the country. She ended up, after teaching them to read, writing um, what was called cheap tracts, you know, cheap literature with sort of fundamental moral lessons written at a letter, level of literacy that, that the poor could read. And so she was wildly successful in all these different um, genres because she wrote in the ones that were popular for the different classes of people. Um, and so she that's how she really engaged the culture. She knew what people were reading, what they wanted to read, and she took those forms and used them to impart the moral, social, and religious 
lessons that she wanted them to learn. Um, and at that time, it, it really worked because literacy was relatively new. There weren't other options, and people really ate up this kind of literature, and, um, and, it, and it brought about some effective change in society, including the abolition of slavery. So how can evangelical Christians today that are concerned about the state of society, how can we take Hannah Moore's life perspectives and lessons and learn from them? Hmm. Wow. Yeah, there are a lot of ways to do that, and I think there's some good lessons we can learn and some and some bad ones. Hmm. Um, I mean, again, she engaged the culture by using the forms that spoke to people at that time. Uh, one of the drawbacks is that that she didn't really, her work did, therefore didn't pass the test of time. Um, so it's almost as though we need to know that we can either write great masterpieces or produce great masterpieces um, that will last, or we can write for the moment and try to change the moment. And I think that's what she did, and that, that's really important because, because she did do that. Um, but at the same time, there was, when we look back at not just Hannah Moore, but the whole circle of evangelicals that she was involved in, um, they did bring about great change, uh, but they also ignored some things. Um, they sort of assumed a Christian worldview and a biblical worldview, which was prevailing at the time, but they didn't really grapple with the growing atheism and, and agnosticism that was growing up alongside them um, that eventually really took over the culture of the later 19th century and into today. Um, so I think there's some gaps in what she and her evangelical friends confronted, um, but in a way they were they were engaged in a kind of moral triage. I mean, it, you know, while the romantics uh, were, were um, you know, flirting with atheism, uh, right. the evangelicals were trying to stop the barbarity of, of human slavery and they couldn't do everything they kind of had to yeah. address the most pressing matters but that's that's something we have to look at and say you know are we doing something that's short term or long term mm. uh, and we can't always do both so we have to be we have to be deliberate in what we choose and, and know what our limitations are well literature is fantastic and uh we could talk about that all day but this is a political podcast and we would re be remiss if we didn't talk about politics a little bit dr Pryor, you've definitely taken Hannah Moore's call to cultural transformation, and you've clearly put it into action. Uh, you've been an outspoken advocate for the unborn since college through writing, peacefully protesting. Uh, as you said, Roe v. Wade could and should be overturned. And more recently, you organized a large group of Christian women to effectively oust Paige Patterson, who is the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. You publicly defended the plight of undocumented immigrants, stood up for abused women, sought justice for black America, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but what compels you as a Christian and evangelical, as a child of God, what compels you to seek justice for the broken and the marginalized in our society? You know, that's a really good question, and um, I don't know if it's cheating to give this answer, um, but I just, it just feels like it's part of my nature. It feels mm -hmm. like it's just something that God put in me, which is this perhaps overdeveloped sense of justice. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something that goes back to, you know, some of my earliest memories in childhood is just kind of being outraged at what I perceive to be unjust. So I think it's the way that God wired me. Um, and all I can really do is try to steward that well, which is not, you know, not the easiest thing always. Um, and 
even if, if God has given me a gift and a calling, um, it's still something that, that I have to be responsible with, right. and I can't just blame him for it, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. Speaking kind of more generally to the, to the cultural moment, does the Christian's responsibility, kind of like Hannah Moore did, to engage and to transform culture, does that connect with this idea of seeking justice? Like, does cultural transformation require the intentional pursuit of justice for everyone and not just for Christians? No, I don't think that it does. Um, I mean, I think that there are... The, the real way that you actually transform the culture is... Um, well, let, let me just let me just back up. I mean, there's, there's an old thing that, that culture is... Um, uh, how does it go? Pol- politics is downstream of, cul- of culture, mm-hmm. right? Or, right? Or the opposite. Some, so, something like that. Yeah. So, po- yeah, so politics is really the fruit or the outcome of what's happening mm. in the culture. And then in politics includes justice. So so what, if you really want to transform the culture permanently, then you do that really through, um, through cultural artifacts, through mm. art and architecture and music and food and family. Um, the things that comprise everyday life, and when we get those wrong or those are done poorly, or we, you know, if if if, if, if the popular music and images and ideas that come from them in our culture right. are unjust and bad, um, then we will see that manifested in our laws and in our politics. And so, there's a sense in which the people who are sort of behind the scenes are the ones creating the cultural artifacts mm. and, um, and and our images of what constitutes justice and what constitutes right and, and the laws that take place are the outcome of that. And so it's almost like it's all hands on deck. Some of us have to be, have to be you know, kind of repairing the hole in the ship, but others, maybe, I'm mixing up my metaphors here, but maybe they just need to be building better ships mm. um, for the future. And so I think the cause of justice is kind of um, it's it's our last our last chance to transform the culture and mm-hmm. those who are making the culture um, by producing good cultural artifacts that remind us of the good, true, and beautiful. They're going to have the longer term effects. So that foundation of kind of those cultural artifacts that you talked about, like that's really really important to um, kind of bringing a good sense of justice and law and order. Like you said, politics is downstream of culture, and that's very true. So American politics is really divided on distinctly partisan lines. You've written a lot about this. Every day it seems like politicians and pundits are finding new ways to attack each other for political gain. So along with a few other Christian political writers uh, like Michael Ware, David French, some of them, you've called out politicians on both sides for rhetoric and uh, reprehensible behavior, honestly, many times. But why do you feel that our culture has devalued civility? Um, and, and people will often point this out, and they're not wrong to do so. Um, we can look throughout history, and we can see a lot of incivility. We can see the kinds of names that Martin Luther called the Pope and Catholics, and we can see in British Parliament, you know, them coming to to fisticuffs even in the 20th century. And we can so we can look at a lot of examples of incivility in our culture, but there definitely is something. Um, different happening in this moment, um, a different form of incivility that I think points to a, to, real, to really a number of things. Um, number one, the fact that we actually don't believe in transcendent truth anymore. Um, you know, it, it, this 
the word of the year a few years ago was post-truth, mm-hmm. and we're seeing that that reality now, even among conservatives and Christians who claim to believe in something called truth are not acting like it because we're being formed by this post-truth culture. So I think that's one thing. I think another thing is that we are um, we are essentially in another dark age. Um, the first dark age, and I know that's a disputed term, I'm just using it metaphorically, but the first period uh, that was, you know, called the dark ages because of its lack of literacy and information in a widespread scale is being repeated now uh, because we have too much information. We have we're flooded with so many news reports and information that we actually can't even discern sometimes what is true, even if we want to know what is true. And so we're kind of, we've fallen prey to ignorance through too much information rather than too little information. Um, And so either whether it's because we don't believe in truth or we don't act like we believe in truth or we can't find the truth, we are replacing truth with power. And so, and and even as evil a power as you find on Twitter from someone just kind of, you know, attacking someone else and getting more followers from it, that's a very feeble form of power, but that is what people are grasping to. And then, of course, we have, you know, greater grasp for power in, in political office and, um, you know, and, and, and public opinion and celebrity culture and so forth. But that's like my short, the shortest answer I can give yeah. to a really important question. Do you think there's space for Christians to bring love and reconciliation from a biblical standpoint? Absolutely. I mean, that is what I am trying to do in whatever small ways that I can and to set an example for, but we definitely need more um, to do that. Uh, it, it almost feels like um, trying to uh, to empty the ocean one drop at a time, but um, there is that much space for it, and, and it can make a difference. I've actually seen it make a difference. I have seen people change their minds about important issues just by watching tweets or watching conversations on uh, social media take place. And we don't always know that it's happening, and it doesn't seem like it's transforming the culture. Um, but there are so many ways that we, we can try to make that change, and I think it can make a difference. You've also written about the value of hospitality uh, in a couple of different articles when it comes to kind of this issue of civility. So what is the value of hospitality in situations like this? Yeah, the articles that I've written about hospitality are really talking about um, not just, you know, not physical hospitality, um, but intellectual and spiritual hospitality. The hospitality that we can offer to ideological opponents because we actually do believe in truth and we have confidence in our positions, which is not the same thing as arrogance or pride. We still need to have intellectual humility, but when we are confident that what we believe is true, even if we don't, you know, have it down perfectly or can't apply it perfectly, then that leaves us able to be open um, and unafraid and unthreatened by those who have different ideas and to engage with them and to, again, even, even, even though Twitter isn't uh, is a very narrow slice of the world. It's still a public forum where people watch exchanges taking place. The people who believe in the truth and who believe in goodness and beauty should be the ones most hospitable to questions and differences of points of view. And people are watching that. And if they see you as being afraid or defensive, then 
that reflects poorly not only on you, but on the foundation of your beliefs. Well, you've taught at Liberty University for 21 years. It's no secret that Liberty is a bastion of evangelical conservatism in, in academia. Uh, Jerry Fowler Sr., the founder himself, was the founder, basically, of the moral majority movement of the 70s and 80s. Uh, Jerry Fowler Jr., who's now in charge of Liberty, has been an ardent supporter of Donald Trump since the early days of his campaign back in 2015-2016. And major Trump fig uh, administration figures like Mike Pence, Melania Trump, Donald Trump Jr., they've all graced the Lynchburg campus. And yet you stand out from many of Liberty. Ide ideologically, you identify more as orthodox rather than what conservatism has become. Uh, you've publicly spoken against the president in tweets and articles and against his brashness multiple times. And you recently tweeted that you won't be voting for Trump or Biden this election cycle. Can you tell us a little bit about why not? Well, the short answer uh, is that I am truly conservative, <laughs> more so than hmm. Republican. Um, I do not believe that uh, that either Trump or Biden uh, is good for the long-term future of our republic. I understand why I understand why people desperately want Trump out of office. I do as well. Um, I also understand why people think that that Trump is important to have in office because of his court appointments and other policies that um, that do uh, advance some conservative uh, principles. However, I think for the long term, we cannot preserve truth, goodness, and beauty with people who defy the basic principles of human dignity on a daily basis, mm -hmm. whether it's in their tweets or their policies or their philandering or their uh, disrespect of women, whatever it might be, we cannot advance what we say we stand for through such moral and political compromises. I know that politics is the art of compromise. I understand that. Um, but when we compromise too much, we lose everything. And that's what I think we're facing right now. The author and uh, writer David French has talked a lot about the idea of exercising a veto of the two major parties by instead voting third party. And a lot of politically concerned Americans might call this a waste of a vote, but is voting for the best leader, no matter their national profile or chance of winning per se, is that more important than winning any given election? And how much should electability affect our vote? Well, of course, I'm not completely unrealistic, and, and, and I would certainly want to be able to vote for an electable candidate. Okay. Um, and I think that we ended up getting Donald Trump simply because the Republican vote in the primary in 2015 was divided by, you know, 16 mm -hmm. different <laughs> candidates or yes. uh, some number like that. And so when we divide the vote too much, we do end up with something sort of far uh, less than, than ideal. Um, yet at the same time, when we have candidates who are winning the election by, you know, close to or less than or just over half of the popular vote, then it's very realistic to think that if the vote were divided by three um, rather than two, it would be, it's completely possible to vote someone in who is uh, the best candidate. Um, but apart from that, even, even if that's not what happens, um, I believe that, again, long-term, that if a really good, solid candidate who represents our ideals gets 
five or ten percent of the vote, um, that sends a message to uh, the politicians for the future about what what a winning candidate must stand for. So again, it's a longer term strategy. Some people make the accusation that you know that the voting for a third party candidate is simply a way of of keeping your conscience clean or an act of piety uh, or some such thing. Um, I'm not saying that it, it, it's not any of those things, but I'm saying it actually is a legitimate political strategy to refuse to vote for bottom feeder candidates and to show the powers that be that there are significant numbers of people who will vote for um, other candidates. Hmm. Every percentage point counts in these elections. Absolutely. It's really interesting how um, people on both sides of Republican and Democrat divide have said really over the past few elections that this is the most important election, so we can't vote third party for this one. But um, really until people are willing to take that step and say, we're going to stand up for for a really good candidate uh, that stands for our values, if a bunch of people don't do that, things will never change. You've done a lot of things um, in terms of standing up for people who have been uh, sexually assaulted. Both candidates, Trump and Biden, have been accused of sexual assault. Trump approximately 25 times, and Biden one, Tara Reid, which was recent. Yet almost every evangelical will still vote for one of these two, and most will vote for Trump. You've taken on leaders embroiled in sexual assault scandals before, so do you feel that the church has compromised character and moral behavior in our leaders for the sake of policy? Absolutely, the church has. This is how we ended up where we are. Um, we are willing to, uh, to sacrifice sexual integrity and, uh, and morality for the sake of policies that we say are the moral ones. Um, and not only is that not possible, but it's utter hypocrisy. And so this is, you know, if we do get someone like Trump again or Trump again, it's, you know, it's clearly a judgment from God because we are getting what we deserve. Uh, in the meantime, I hope that some of us will, um, you know, a remnant might be enough to save us from this judgment, but if yeah. not, um, then we still have the opportunity to change our ways, but so far I don't see that happening. I understand that um, that people are concerned that some of these accusations may be false, and of course that's, that's definitely a mm. possibility that some of these accusations are false, but we can look throughout history and we can see good men and good leaders yes. who've lived their lives in such a way that they mm. have never had such accusations made. And I think it's possible to live your life in such a way. Absolutely. And those are the kinds of people that I want to elect. Men above reproach, yeah. Hmm. Well, one final question here. Uh, ethnic and race issues really continue to divide our country. They clearly have, really, since the beginning. Uh, but the recently released video of the Ahmad Arbery killing brought those tensions to the surface. So over the past week, Christianity's had a lot of discussions, some of them fruitful, about this idea of biblical justice, which we touched on earlier. But what kind of justice needs to be served in this situation? Should we just pursue individual justice for Arbery and leave it at that? Or does this murder reveal systemic injustices that Christians must try to reconcile? It's such an important question because, again, we're seeing the two primary sides in this debate break down not just on racial or political lines, but really they are divided by the understanding understandings on the one hand that are that that emphasize individualism and the other that emphasize systems and communities and structures. Mm -hmm. And 
what we're seeing in both this COVID-19 crisis, in the election of Trump, and in the murder of Ahmad Arbery are the fruits of hyper-individualism um, that, that, that account only for individual acts. Um, and justice is not only an individual thing where I get what I deserve and you get what you deserve. There's, there is an element of justice that is individual, but there's also an element of justice that has to do with the whole community or the whole polis, as the Greeks would have would have put it. Getting our just desserts is embedded in a whole cultural understanding. To go back to our discussion of Hannah Moore, our, our sort of cultural imaginary about what our relations with one another look like and what we imagine is happening. I mean, when we see someone walking down the street, we don't just see someone walking down the street. We see all of the narratives and stories and images that have come before that make us imagine who that person is walking down the street and what he's doing, and we react accordingly. That's just human nature, and that's why these cultural artifacts that the artisans and the the visionaries create are so important in helping us to achieve justice because we never just see what's in front of us. We see all of the stories that are embedded uh, around what's in front of us that, um, that, that shape and form our reactions and actions in response to what we see. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on Cross the Line. This was a great discussion. I hope that our listeners learned as much as I did. I'm taking a lot away from this for sure. A lot to think about. Uh, but these are the kinds of discussions that America can't shy away from in the coming months, coming years, coming decades, really. Because, for, like you said, for a society to truly flourish and to bring beauty and justice, we must continue to intentionally talk about these difficult issues with civility and perspective. If we engage culture and transform it by bringing both truth and love to the table, we can truly change the world. So, Dr. Pryor, how can our listeners keep up with you and your writing and keep up with you on social media? Well, the easiest way to keep up with me is on Twitter at KS Pryor, uh, or um, I have a website, um, KarenSwallowPryor.com. And for those of you who like the more peaceful tranquility of the environment of Instagram, I'm also there at Karen <laughs> Swallow Pryor. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this episode of Cross the Line, a Christian perspective on politics. To hear more episodes like this and to read the Citizens Brief newsletters and feature articles, Check us out at thecitizensbrief.com. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, we'd love if you shared it with a friend or two. Uh, you just heard from Professor Karen Swallow Pryor, and I'm your host, Daniel Hosetter. We'll see you on the next episode of Cross the Line.